Good morning. Got a doozy of a text in front of us that we're going to get to in a second, but before we open to that, I just want to say this, that it is important to understand how something works before you try to use it or try to act on that. Um, you guys agree with that for the most part, that, that before you try to use a, a material or, or, a, or a mechanic advice or, or apply yourself to a situation, you should probably understand how that thing works. For, for instance, a gun, all right? Um, I don't know how to use a gun, really. So some, someone could set it up for me and I could shoot some clay pigeons. But, but if I try to use a gun um, without learning it a little bit, that could spell disaster for uh, my home, right? And so I know a lot of you are judging me right now, but <laughs> I'm from, from the north. So this past week I was in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, for um, three days training for UPS to be a first responder to hazardous spills, and uh, it's important. I learned some things that are kind of scary, that if I, if I just try to go up to one of those hazardous spills and just take care of it, th- bad things could happen, not only to me, but to our entire area here in Anniston. They're going to they're gonna set out water warnings, you know, saying UPS just dumped this stuff into the, the lake, and, and now none of us can drink water. It's going to be bad news. We need to you know, know what we're dealing with here, and then start applying ourselves to it, and and guys, we're all continually learning this, but we need to understand how women work, right? We need to understand how ladies operate, how, how they think and how they feel before we try to woo them, before we try to, to speak into their lives and encourage them. Uh, you've probably all had an experience where you thought you understood and you just didn't understand. And you, you realized later that day that you did that. You needed to do some more studying there, right? Peter, Peter calls the men to understand their wives, right? Because he, he knew that. He had a wife. That's why Paul never said that. Peter had a wife. He says, work on, work on understanding your, your woman. So, all that to say, we agree with the principle. Today's text, this principle is very true. Uh, it's a common command, be filled with the Spirit. And, and I'll say that in, in the church at large, this has probably been one of the most misunderstood texts out of all the instructions in Scripture. And because it's been misunderstood, it's been misapplied. Because it's been misunderstood, it's been mishandled. And you see, you see whole ministries built off of um, a misunderstanding of what this means, a, really a, a non-understanding of what it means that lead to misapplication and, and to countless lives harmed and damage done. At the same time, because of that reality, it's also misunderstood because the rest of the people just are afraid of it. And so they don't, they don't even try to understand it. They just know how it's been misapplied over here. And so let's just stay away from that be filled with the Spirit talk. And, and let's just be okay with doing things without that. And so they just ignore it. And that also leads to damage. And so there's two pendulums there, right? But but it's here for us. We've, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, that build. We just finished that this past week. And, and this is one of the commands in that text, be filled with the Spirit. And so what we want to do today is understand what this means. Do our best to understand what it means. And then, once we understand it, to apply what it means. So that we don't misapply it on the one hand to, to the damage of ourselves and to those who come into this building and at the same time, we don't just ignore it, ignore God's Word. We don't want to do either of those things. So we want to understand, be filled with the Spirit. It's a unique command. It's, it's, this is the only time in Scripture that this is commanded. There's no other time where, where any New Testament writer or any Old Testament writer says to God's people, be filled with the Spirit as an instruction. There's examples of people being filled with the Spirit, but this is the only command. And, and it's about the Holy Spirit, which immediately throws us for a curve because we we tend to get a little um, trepidation about, about dealing with the Holy Spirit. We're, there, there's less in the Bible focusing on the Spirit. I'll say as an aside, that's because the Spirit inspired the Scripture, and he pointed to the Father and to Christ when he did that. And so what we want to do, you can, you can turn to the text. We, it's at Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians 5.18, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. What we want to do is read this text first, and then, 
And then in this first section where we're just trying to understand what it means, I want to look at a few clues to help us get, get our guidance for that question. So Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, I want to I give you three clues that help us understand what this text does mean. All right, so clue number one is from verses 19 through 21. As you look at the verbs in 19 through 21, these are, these are ing verbs. They're, they're participles, and so they relate back to that main command, be filled with the Spirit. And as you look at those words and those verbs, just look if you can see what is, what is the setting that you're envisioning as you read these. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks Submitting to one another. What, what setting do you envision as you read those verbs? Where are we? Or a worship service, right? This, this, this is a congregational setting. So, so that's clue number one. Um, immediately we, we, we see a clarity from a misconception that, that usually we read, be filled with the Spirit, just in isolation, and we don't even think about the fact that this is happening in a congregational setting. This, this instruction is coming to us as a congregation, as a gathered people. And so that's clue number one. Now, what we're going to do is trace from that clue, which, which tells us this is talking about the gathered church, and then we want to understand, well, what, is, what does the book of Ephesians say about the church? And there, are there any clues in the larger book of Ephesians that will help us continue to understand? You guys have been in Build, you know that the book of Ephesians is all about the church. Its, it's, it's essential message is God has saved you by His grace, not only as an individual, but He saved you into a body of people called the church. And he has placed you in that body. And a few chapters earlier, you can just flip your page back a few verses to chapter 2, verse 22. This section of Ephesians, Paul has been describing to the church how God has brought them together as one new body, as a spiritual family. And then in 22, he says, In him, that's in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, you, church, are God's new temple. You you, you are God's new temple, and the Spirit dwells in you as a temple. God's building you together in Christ, and the Spirit is filling this temple with his presence. And, And so that's clue number two, is that Paul has already established, by the time we get to our passage today, that the church is a temple that the Spirit fills. And then clue number three is this odd verse at the beginning of this. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that just throws us for a a loop, because those seem very unrelated, right? Do not get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. So this is clue number three, is that what Paul has been doing, if you've been following into these verses is he's been contrasting how the Gentiles live with how believers are called to live. He said in verse 417, no longer walk like the Gentiles do. Don't don't walk like the Gentiles do. A lot of you were Gentiles. Don't walk like you used to walk. And then he goes forward and he he describes how the Gentiles walk, and then he says, here's how you should walk. And And then he describes how they walk in darkness, but you're called to walk in light. He says they walk in foolishness, but you're called to walk in wisdom. And here he says, and don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not just saying those Gentiles are always getting drunk. They, they, they did get drunk, but, but when you see it in connection with be filled with the Spirit, and we already established this, this is church setting, this is temple imagery, you'd only know this if, if you were one of the original readers. And so we're thankful for sources that help us know what was in their minds that Gentiles would go to worship in their temples, and part of their worship was drinking. Part of their worship was, was drinking wine, and, and through just the, the way that that wine would, 
work their senses up that they would experience their gods. That, that, that was part of Gentile worship, and, and we don't see that in our day as much, though if you go to a football game, modern-day temple, you're going to see a lot of drinking, right? <laughs> you're going to see a lot of that. Here he's saying that the Gentiles, they go to their temples, and, and for them to ex- try to experience their God, they're, they're just drinking, and, and, and they're, they're getting um, the emotions that they are desiring and experiencing their God in that way. That's not how you're supposed to walk anymore. You, you might have done that when you, were, when you were outside of Christ, but in Christ, don't get drunk with wine. In the new temple of God, be filled with the Spirit. And so, so those are our three clues as to the meaning for filled with the Spirit. So, so the instruction is about our experience as a congregation. The instruction is about our experience of being God's temple. You can throw the definition up there at this point. This, this is definition for what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I forgot that PowerPoint was out over here. For a congregation to be filled with the Spirit is for a congregation to worship according to the Spirit's desires, such that they most fully enjoy the blessing of the Spirit's presence. All right, let's break that down, and I'll try to tie it to the clues we just saw. Um, first, we already saw that, that God's church is God's temple. And, and so, when we, when we come to worship, God's Spirit is already here. And I want us to just hear that for a second. God's Spirit is already here when believers come together to worship. So, so we will sing things like, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place. We're going to sing that later today. Come flood this place. But we need to realize that when we sing that, we don't mean that he's not here. Right. Where, where God's people are gathered in Jesus' name, the Spirit is with them. We're already a temple. But just like so many things in the Christian life, there's an already and there's a not yet. There's, a, there's an indicative reality, a, a, a reality about who you are in Christ, but then there's our experience of that reality and growing into that experience. And so the Spirit is here, but this text is calling us to, to seek after the enjoyment of our templeness, so to speak. Church, you are a temple. Redeemer Church, when we gather, we're a temple for the Spirit, but this text is calling us to, to embrace what it means to be a temple and to seek after the blessing of being God's temple, to, to grow into that. And so, this definition, for, for, for us as a congregation to be filled with the Spirit, is for us to worship when we come together in a way that accords with what the Spirit desires. For, for, for our worship to reflect the Spirit's heart. For our worship to reflect the will of the Holy Spirit, who is with us in our worship and empowering our worship, such that, when, when we do that, we can most fully enjoy the blessing of the Spirit's presence who's already here. So, so this is what it's not. Being filled with the Spirit is not us coming and trying to do everything exactly right so the Spirit will meet us. We're not just, we're not just trying to tweak things and to get that magic formula so the Spirit would then flood upon us in, in some um, Saul First Samuel sort of way. We saw that a few weeks ago, right? Where Saul all of a sudden is overtaken by the Spirit and, and ends up naked prophesying. That's not what we're after here, please, right? We're not after that. What we are doing is, is we're studying God's Word to see what, what does the Spirit desire when we come together to worship. We're applying ourselves to those things so that we can experience the presence of the Spirit who's already here with us. All that's a little bit technical, but try to break it back down as simple as I can, that what this text is calling us to do is to experience our being God's temple by worshiping according to the Spirit's will. All right? And so we're going to see in this text what is the Spirit's will. This text is going to teach us that. But before we go, there's one more thing that this, this command is be filled. It's be filled. So, so first it's a command. So this is, this is calling Redeemer Church. It's, it's an instruction to us. Be filled with the Spirit. You do it, right? But what is it? It's a, it's a passive command, right? So it's not fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit. We could never do that. But, but it is putting responsibility on us to place ourselves in a position to be filled with the Spirit. It's also not a one-time experience. Um, 
being, this, this is a normative experience. What, what, what Paul's envisioning here is that we would seek to be filled every time we gather. Not once a year, not once every five years, not just when revival comes, but that every week we gather, that we would be filled with the Spirit. And like we said, it's, it's a plural verb. It's second person plural. It's y'all. All right? Y'all be filled with the Spirit. All right? And if you're in certain parts of the South, y'all is singular, and so you'd say, all y'all be filled with the Spirit. That's what this is t- calling us to do. And so finally, I mentioned this earlier, we see these participles, these ING verbs in verses 19 through 21. What are those participles doing? They, we're going to spend most of our time here. They're showing us what is the Spirit's desire for our worship. These, these, these participles are showing us what is it that God is calling you to do when you come to church on a Sunday morning so that as a congregation, you can experience the blessing of the Spirit's presence. So all that is by way of understanding, right? It's, it's necessary for us to go through that because if you don't know how to operate a gun, you shouldn't shoot it, right? If you don't know what this means, you shouldn't try to seek after it. And we've been, like I said, we've been singing some songs recently that are asking the Holy Spirit to come and fill us, and that's a good thing. But we want to understand what spiritual worship really is. And so, so now we understand it, what we want to do now is, is go into this text. It's going to be very applicational, I hope. And we're just going to ask ourselves, how can we pursue spirit-filled worship? I just want to stop before we do that and just have you ask yourself right now, before we go any further, do you want to experience the Spirit's presence when you come to Redeemer? Like, when you come, do you just want to hear a sermon that's going to be food for thought to get you through your week? Or do you just want to sing some songs that you're going to enjoy and have a meal together? Those, those are all good things, but, but do you want to actually meet with the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you want to be filled with the presence of the Spirit, to experience the blessing of, of, of corporate life with God? And as I thought about that this week, my answer was, yes, I want that, but how badly do I want that? How, how strong is that desire in me? I pray that the Lord would just push that desire up in my heart. Make me crave his presence. And so I just want to right now just ask you before we go any further, that these, these things won't matter to us if we're not together saying we want the Spirit's presence here. And so just in your own heart, pray for that right now. Ask, ask God to bless us with the Spirit's presence and to help us to pursue that together. There's four marks of spirit-filled worship. Four marks. And so the first one is the only one that, that comes from um, outside of our text today, which is 18 to 21. It's, it's from chapter 1, 1 through 5, 17. So let's read that. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to read all those verses. Spirit-filled worship is grace-fueled worship. Spirit-filled worship is grace-fueled worship. Now, before we explain that, I'll I, I just with each one of them. What, what is our natural tendency before we look at what is the Spirit calling us to? Our natural tendency is law-fueled worship. Okay? When, when we worship, and I'm talking not just congregational right now, but I'm talking all of life. When, when we're worshiping God, there's either one of two things fueling you. It's either God's grace or it's law. Either God's grace or law. God's law, or if you don't know God's law, just the law that God's put in your heart. And the law is a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. So, so our tendency is law-fueled worship. We, we, what, what do I mean by that? We worship because we should. We have, we have this sense that, that this is what we ought to do, and so we come. Or, and, or so we live a certain way. We worship because we should. We worship because we're trying to be good enough. We're, we're performing. We're worshiping to earn something. Maybe what it is is, is an exchange we're playing with God where if I worship God enough, then he'll give me the reward that, that I'm seeking after. And so, so we set up this system of performance worship with God where we're trying to be good enough for him. We're trying to earn his acceptance. We're trying to to please Him 
out of a sense of oughtness instead of a sense of joy. And law-fueled worship is weak worship. It's weak worship. It, it, it's not strong enough because, because we're not grasping the fullness of God's glory when all we're grasping is that God is a lawgiver. The Old Testament reveals God as a lawgiver, right? It, it, it's a good thing that God is a just, holy God, but it reveals so much more about God as well. And if you only see that God gives a law, then your worship is just going to be a response to, to that. It's just going to see God as a judge who, who gives you standards that you can't meet, and then you're trying to worship him. And what's that, what kind of heart is going to be in that? It's going to be a weak-hearted worship, right? At the same time, it's crushing. Law-fueled worship is crushing worship because we can never bring what's good enough to God. We're never going to bring something that's good enough to God. And what that does is as, as you live a law-fueled life of worship, it just crushes you because you realize, I'm never going to be good enough for this God. I'm never going to to bring him something that would earn his acceptance. I'm never going to have a relationship with him that I need and that I crave. It's, it's, it's not going to be good enough, and it's going to crush you, and you're going to end up, as Martin Luther testified, hating God when you try to worship him based only on his law because we're sinners and we cannot keep his law. And, and Christians, we are under grace, but we always are prone to law-fueled worship. That, that is the default of our sinful nature. And so when we aren't keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, we default to law-filled worship. We begin to forget that God is our Father and, and simply relate to Him as a judge. On the other hand, there's grace-fueled worship. And grace-fueled worship is a worship that arises genuinely from our hearts in response to God's glorious grace in the gospel. Grace-fueled worship arises genuinely, actually, from our hearts, from inside of us, toward God, in love, in response to His grace in the gospel. We, we, Joey read this earlier to start. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul is describing to the church God's blessings in salvation. And in verse 6, he says, this is to the praise of His glorious grace. In verse 12, he says it's to the praise of His glory. In verse 14, it says it's to the praise of His glory. God has saved you to the praise of His glorious grace. Chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. God has given you the gift of saving faith. God has given you the gift of grace so that no one can boast, so that when you stand in heaven before God, you're not going to say one thing about what you contributed to salvation. You're not going to contribute one thing at that moment. You're going to say, I didn't do anything to earn being here. There was not one action, not one thought that got me to this place. But God, you saved me by your grace. You say it's your gift. Chapter 3, Paul ends chapter 3 by saying to the church that to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. All of it's to the praise of his glory. And so, so this is the first Really, what we're doing right now is we're summarizing the book of Ephesians. All right, we studied it all year long. In chapters 1 through 3, this is the message. God has saved you by His grace so that you would worship His glory. God has saved you by His grace so that you would worship His glory. Genuine worship is, is grace-fueled worship. And, and 4.1 is a hinge to the book. Verse 4.1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, he's saying, look, look at what God has done for you. Look at the calling God has given you. Fix your eyes on it. In light of that, I urge you to live it out. Let, let the gospel calling that you've received compel your gospel living for God. And so, so how does this work? How does this work? Our tendency is law-fueled worship. And left to, just, if we just try to go into our day, pull up our bootstraps and live for God, we're, 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 it's law-fueled worship. We're, we're going to fail. It's going to be weak. There's going to be no heart in it. And it's going to crush us. But if we begin each day of our lives 
stopping, getting on our knees before the Lord, and, and just remembering who God is. That he, he is the one true God. He is the creator God. He gave us life and breath even today. And then we remember who we are. That created by him, we were rebels. That we sinned against him. That our works could never atone for our sins. That we were dead in our sin. That we had no hope in this world. We, we just remember who we were and the, the, the gulf that existed between us and God. And we feel that. We confess our sins and, and we get it out of our minds that we could ever earn God's favor. And then as we confess our sins, we, we remember that God made us alive by grace. We remember that God raised us up with Christ by grace. We remember that God sealed us with his spirit by grace. That we have an inheritance by grace. That his power is with us now by grace. We remember that everything is by the grace of God because Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He bore God's wrath in our place. There's no punishment left for sinners like you and me. We remember all of that. And, and as, we, as you do that in your own heart, as you pray through the gospel, what's happening is that you're seeing the glory of God. You're seeing how good God is. You're, you're no longer seeing him as a judge. You're seeing him as a gracious, loving father. And when you see God as a gracious, loving father, it compels your heart to want to worship him. Compels your heart. So, so, so you need to aim for your heart every day of your life, or else you're going to shift back to law field worship. And in and, and, and light of our text today, here's the principle that spirit filled congregational worship is always the overflow of grace fueled personal worship. So if, if you're not doing this day to day in your life, living these rhythms of preaching the gospel to yourself, letting the gospel wash over you, living in response to it, and then you come on Sunday, we're not going to experience spiritual worship that way. You notice that verse 18 in our text starts with the word and. It's because Ephesians doesn't start in 5.18. Ephesians starts back in 1.1 and goes all the way through, and then this comes. It's, this, is, this is happening in the flow of seeing the gospel, responding to the gospel, living out the gospel in your life, and then you come together and you hear the instruction, be filled with the Spirit. And so we're, we're called to lives of grace-fueled personal worship each day. And so... We've already said it. The application for this is very simple. Preach and pray through and worship through the gospel every day of your life. Preach it to yourself, pray through it, and worship the God of the gospel every single day of your life. We've shown this to you before, but this is a, this is a helpful tool if that's new to you. It's a gospel primer. This is just a little booklet, and we have them back there on the on the booklet rack on the very top row. There's, there's probably 15 of them back there right now. And what this does is it just takes you through the gospel. And, and it does it um, just in a personal way where you can talk through it, pray through it, worship God in response to the gospel. And what that's going to do is it's going to warm your heart. It's not, it's not something that you need every day, is that booklet, but it's a, it's a helpful tool if that's new to you, if it's a new concept to you. And so, once you do that, then let your gospel calling compel your gospel living. And so, to frame it again with our larger subject, what does this have to do with spirit-filled worship? We need to all commit to personal worship if we want to come here and experience spirit-filled worship. We need need to all commit to grace-fueled lives of worship if we want to come in here on Sundays and experience the blessing of God's Spirit together. All right, so... That's looking backward. Now we're going to get into the details of our text. We've seen, number one, that spirit-filled worship is grace-fueled worship. Number two, spirit-filled worship is others-oriented worship. Others-oriented worship. Now again, what is our tendency? Our tendency is self-oriented worship. All right, so this, this... point is asking the question, why, why are you coming to church on a Sunday morning? Like, why, why do you get up and, and get dressed and come on a Sunday morning? And the, the answer for our natural tendency is, is for me. This, this is about this hour and a half. Even if nothing else in your life, 
you would say is about you, you, you'll probably say that this hour and a half is about me and about my experience with God. It's about my relationship with God. It's about me learning. It's, 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 it's self-oriented. That, that is how we naturally operate. And the songs that are being written in our, in our culture today reinforce this. You'll notice how much of a difference there is between older songs that have our and we versus newer songs that have I and me over and over again. That You know, I was part of a church for a long time. Can't start talking about this. I've, I'm a totally different person than I was um, five years ago when, when we were at Moody. Because I came from a church background that was just like this, where, where really the goal of worship, of corporate worship, was to lose yourself with God so that you didn't even really know that anyone was around you. It, it was, everyone else helped you get there because the, the more they sang, the more excited you got, but, but really the goal was you just want to get to that point where it's just you and God. I remember leading a song where, where the chorus, the last chorus, just continued to say, it's just you and me here now. It's only you and me here now. Hopefully not looking around and realizing, no, there's actually a lot of other people here right now. <laughs> See, it's self-oriented. That, there's, this, there's this goal. And, so you, and you listen to a sermon, and you're, and you're just thinking, you're just thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about yourself as part of a communal body of people. When you're singing, this really affects how we sing, because if it's just about you, then you can sing if you want. You can sing if you feel good, if you like the song. It's, this is just to help you, right? It's self-oriented. That is not what this text is calling us to. Look at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. Church, when you come together, you want, what you want is to pursue experiencing and enjoying the blessing of the Spirit's presence with you to the fullest extent. Here's how you... Go about doing that. Address each other when you sing. Sing to one another in your songs. Very different, right, than, than this mindset of just you and me here now. <laughs> Very different. Others-oriented worship is worship where each member of the congregation is mindful of their responsibility to love, serve, and encourage all the other members through their participation. I'll say that again. Others-oriented worship is worship where each member of the congregation, each one of you, comes mindful of your responsibility to love, serve, and encourage the people to your right and to your left and behind you and in front of you through how you participate in worship. Your participation is ultimately not about you. It's about the people around you. It's about you when you're alone in your room having your iTunes going and singing songs. It can be about you all you want there, all right? And that's a good thing to do. I'm not at all saying don't do that. Worship personally. But when you come to corporate worship, realize that you have a responsibility to the people around you. And this fits with the Spirit because the Spirit is the member of the Trinity that most highlights everyone else, right? The Holy Spirit just continues to put the focus on the Father, continues to put the focus on Christ. The Spirit models this for us. The Spirit is others-oriented, and so His desire for our worship is that we would be others-oriented. And so, what do we do? What are some things we can do to, to get that mindset? This, this text gives us just a big-picture version of what that looks like, that, that when you'd come, you'd be singing to each other. And so that's an application that we'll talk about, but but it starts before then. If you want to have that mindset at that point, it starts earlier. And so I want to give five applications for how we can pursue others-oriented mindset when we come to worship. And the first one is pray for one another consistently. How many of you have one of these with you? Membership directory. Open it up. The Atchison's are first. Wayne and Rebecca, I have prayed for you guys more than anyone else in this book because you're first. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that likes to get it right the first time, and if I don't, I start over. And so I've gotten a lot of prayers for the Atchison family. 
Hope you guys are blessed by that. <laughs> we have a membership directory, and you can use that. Maybe start in the back sometimes and work your way backwards. <laughs> Balance it out some. You can use that to go through and just mark it up, get a new one every year, and, and pray for each other during the week. I mean, what, what if you just committed to, to pray for one family every morning? It's one family. You, you'd, you'd probably pray for the, the whole church twice a year if you did that. that. That's just once a week if you did it that way. What if in your family worship times, when, when you sit at the table in the mornings or at night, as a family, you just went through the directory together and you just prayed for a family together? That, that's going, what is that going to do in your mind? It's, it's going to link you to each other in a, in a more profound way than if all you do is see each other and worship together, but then don't really think about each other during the week. It's going to link you to each other's physical needs and spiritual needs. It's, it's, going, it's going to bind us together in our hearts and our minds by, by praying for one another. I'll also say this, that every Sunday at 9 o'clock, we pray together. 9 o'clock is earlier than 10 o'clock. It's an hour earlier. I understand that. And, it, and it's hard for certain families and different situations, different life stages to come to that. But I'll say this now, and I won't mention it again, that probably 10 of these applications will be, will be met if you came to prayer at 9 o'clock. It's just going to, it's going to happen because of the way that it's going to prime your heart and bind you to one another. And so if you can, there's any way you can, and, and there are families that come that I would think can't, I'll say that, that, that you should consider joining for prayer at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Well, even if you can't, pray for each other consistently. Use this directory. Ask each other how you're doing and, and pray for one another. Secondly is, is serve one another sacrificially. Serve one another sacrificially. Um, one, one just example that popped into my mind for this, there's many other ways, but one example of sacrificial serving is mowing the lawn. All right, Mowing the lawn takes a lot of time. It takes Four hours if you're going as fast as you can on that thing. And you're going to be really sore if you do. All right? I've done that. It's really sore when I did. So what does that do? When, when, when I come here to mow the lawn, it's not my lawn, right? It's my time, not my lawn, making me sore. I'm in the sun. What is that doing, though? It's, it's, it's linking me to this place. It's linking me to these people. It's linking me to the Frisbee players on Saturday afternoons and to the kids on Sunday afternoons. And it's, it's just reinforcing that I'm part of something bigger than myself, right? When you serve, whether it's mowing the lawn or whether it's doing slides or cleaning up or, or anything like that, when you, in the nursery, when you serve, it's, it's reminding you that this is not just about you. This is about us as a community. Third, welcome one another affectionately. I don't want to um, talk about this in a way that just lays guilt, unnecessary guilt. What I want to do is talk about this in a way that, that says this is for you. This is an encouragement. Let's, let's, let's remember what we're talking about. This is experiencing the Holy Spirit's presence and the blessing of it in a more profound way as a church body. This morning at 10 o'clock, this room was very empty. It was very empty. A couple years ago, Ryan and I believe with the elders sent a letter to the church about coming early for church. Very simple, come at 9.45. And it was a very encouraging response. That Sunday, 9.45, it was full in here. We were, we were talking, we were with each other, we worship began, we were singing out. And then we just kind of strayed back the other way. And, and it seems so simple on one hand, just it's, just it's just coming a little bit early, and why is that such a big deal? But the reason I didn't make this point come early is because that's just, that's just what you do to do what is actually important in those moments. The point is welcome one another affectionately. See, when you come in late, then when you begin worship, you haven't talked to anybody. You, you, you've, you've missed out what we've already begun experiencing together. You, your whole orientation is self at that point. 
But when you come at 9.45, that's the time that that letter suggested a few years ago, you have 15 minutes to engage one another, to ask how you were doing. Last week I was able to pray with a couple brothers for one of them before worship began. And then you sit down and you're ready to engage together in corporate worship. It makes such a difference. It makes such a difference. I know a family, I know that you're just saying, you don't know what it's like at our house in the morning. And I do know because we have a baby and we have been late to our worship practice. So we have the blessing of having to be here at eight, all right? So, so we're early even though we're late. But I know a family in this church, we've talked to them about this, that, that they're late every week, but they're always early. Because for them, late is 9.30. They just said, that's going to be the time we come. And, and, and they're always late. But they're always early because they've just readjusted what, what is on time, right? And so if on time is 10, you're going to probably be late a lot. It works that way for everything, right? If, if, if you should be at an appointment at 10 and, and that's when you plan to be there, you're probably going to be late. But if you just plan to come earlier, then you're probably going to be on time at least and, and hopefully early. And so, like I said, I don't want this to be a guilt trip. I don't want this to at all be, you guys need to get it together, because I know it's hard, and like I said, we're late sometimes for our worship practices, but be filled with the Spirit, exactly. And, and one way to do that, one way to get that mindset is to welcome each other affectionately, to be here when someone comes through the door, and to give them a hug, and to say, how are you doing, and to just have a moment together before we worship together. Next, sing to one another mightily. Sing to one another mightily. Now, I know I'm the worship pastor, and so you're just, you know, blah, blah, blah at this point, right? But, <laughs> hey, it's in the text. It's in the text. So I'll just look there, all right? It's not me blowing my trumpet so, or my guitar. Sing to each other mightily. We talked about this already, so I won't say much about it, but if worship is about you, you can sing if you want, you cannot sing if you want, if it's self-oriented. But if it's about us, then your singing and how, whether you're singing and how strong you're singing is going to affect the people around you. It's going to affect the people around you. What does it communicate if you're not singing mightily? It communicates disengagement. It communicates, I, I, I'm not, I don't care about it. It might communicate, I don't really believe this. Now, I don't want anyone to be ingenuine when they're singing. If, if you're struggling, then, and, and, and you're really struggling to believe this, I'm not, I'm not saying this has to be a hard rule, that you never just close your eyes and listen. That's, part of, that's the other side of this, right? The, the blessing of closing your eyes and listening. But, again, realize that your responsibility in this moment is to each other, not just to yourself. And so sing mightily. Along the same lines, the last one is testify to one another courageously. We've begun sharing testimonies this year. We're going to be doing that later today. And I just want to remind you that this is not about yourself when you give testimony to the Lord. It's about the Lord, and it's about one another. Testimony is calling each other to recognize who the Lord is, to see his faithfulness, and to be encouraged by that. And so testify courageously. If there's something to testify about, do it for the sake of one another. Be others-oriented. It's a huge point, and I honestly think that is probably the um, most critical point in the sermon, most critical point for the church today, not just Redeemer Church, but all churches. We're so self-oriented in our worship, and because of that, we are missing out on the Spirit's presence with us, his, the, the blessing of knowing that He's with us. The third point is that Spirit-filled worship is Christ-focused worship. Christ-focused worship. And, and so what is our tendency? If, if Christ-focused worship is the point, then what's our tendency? Our tendency is feelings-focused worship. It's feelings-focused worship. Now just follow me for a second. You come on a Sunday morning, and you had a bad week. And, and maybe it was just trivially a bad week, or maybe it was really a bad, hard week. Maybe it's a really hard season. And when you enter into worship, your entire focus is that thing or that feeling, that situation. And you're interpreting everything that's going on based on how is this meeting this need? How is, 
how is that truth meeting this feeling that I'm experiencing? How, how is this song meeting this trial that I'm in? And if it is, then that's great, and you're going to engage. But if it's not, then you're going to disengage. You're, you're, you're going to just continue to focus on that feeling, and you're going to leave thinking this didn't do anything for me today. It's very similar to self-oriented. It's very self-focused, right? It's, it's feelings-focused. It's emotions-focused. If I don't feel like singing this song because of what's going on in my life, why, why do I need to sing this song? If I don't feel like listening to the sermon because it's not relevant to me, why should I listen to it? Our tendency is feelings-focused worship. 5.19 says, continues singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Christ-focused worship. Um, here's the thing. We, we have real situations. We have real needs. The way that God most of the time meets those needs is not directly by just giving us an answer to that question or, or or giving us something that's going to change that situation. The way that God meets that need is by showing us Christ. Whatever you need, you need Christ. Every single week. As a worship pastor, this is encouraging to me because I could not plan songs that would meet all of our needs every week, that, that would meet everyone where they are. But, but if we focus on Christ, everything else is going to come into perspective. Everything else is going to come into perspective. So, so Christ-focused worship is, is worship that, that has Christ as the content. We're going to sing songs about Christ. We're going to pray prayers that focus on Christ. We're going to preach sermons about Christ. We're going to respond and give testimony that, that praises Christ. And it's worship that's directed to the Father in Jesus' name. It's worship that comes up to God as our Father in Jesus' name. And look here. Give thanks always and for everything. Give thanks always and for everything. I was surprised that didn't, that didn't say give thanks in everything. Because we're okay with that. Give thanks in everything. Yeah, you might not want to give thanks for that situation, but you can give thanks in that situation still, right? For the, for the, for the silver lining. But he says, no, give thanks for everything. How could you do that? Whether it's a flat tire on the road or whether it's a serious loss of relationship or bout of depression or death in the family or cancer. Give thanks for everything. It's a heavy command, right? But you do it in the name of Jesus. So again, we have feelings, we have needs, we have emotions, but what we do is we come, we focus on Christ, and that puts everything in perspective so that we realize in Christ all things are working for our good and for his glory. In Christ, everything that is needful, God has given it to us. Nothing is needful that he's withholding from us. And so we can give thanks for everything and not have our worship be feelings-guided, but Christ-focused. And so with this point... I want to say first a word to just anyone that takes part in leading our services. Anyone that's ever up here speaking or praying or preaching, never tire of holding out Christ in your words. Never tire of it. You know, I preach three or four times a year, and so it's a little easier for me probably than, say, for Ryan, who preaches almost every week, to to every week hold out Jesus and, and not feel like, is this getting old to them? And same for everyone else that's speaking in a service. But like we said earlier, we all, we all shift away. We all shift away, and we all need Jesus Christ more than anything, more than anything. And so let's never tire of holding out Christ. And, and for the congregation... Christ-focused worship, I think, requires us to engage in worship from beginning to end. Our services, you can see them in your bulletins, are structured as a progression. 
from call to worship to benediction. And each part builds on the last part. And what that progression does is it takes us through the gospel. It takes us through the gospel by calling us to God, showing us who God is and his attributes as we adore God. Then we confess our sins, we pray for his help, we hear his word, we celebrate the gospel, we consecrate ourselves to God. There's a flow there. And if you come in later or leave earlier, then you're missing part of the gospel in in that progression of worship. And so to be Christ-focused, engage from beginning to end. Let, Let that flow occur in your heart as we worship together. Also, let the truth guide your emotions rather than letting your emotions guide you alone. When you are feeling something, don't just leave it at the door. If you leave, if you leave your feelings and situations at the door, then you're just going to leave Christ at the door when you leave. All right. So don't leave it at the door. But when you have a felt need, come express it to God and then entrust it to God. Thank God for it and focus yourself on Jesus Christ. Trusting that he'll meet that need through Jesus Christ. Finally, spirit-filled worship is humbly postured worship. It's humbly postured worship. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our tendency is proudly postured worship. Our natural tendency is to come in here proud. It's It's to come in here uh, bloated up with ourselves and, and not thinking that we need anything, that we're good. We, we, we come and, and we want to communicate to one another that we're doing just fine. We, we, we don't want to come and appear broken to one another. And we don't want to come and, and face the fact that we're broken before God. We don't, we don't want to come and accept that we need change today, that we have sin, that we have problems, and that, and that we need help. But it's the sick who need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. And if we don't come broken, humble, realizing our need for change, then we're not going to experience the Spirit together. Proudly postured worship is rooted in irreverence for Christ. If, if, if you're coming and, and you are just trying to, to communicate to others that you're doing fine when you're not, or if you're coming and, and you just don't feel like you really need to change, it's because you're not reverencing Jesus Christ. Because He has shown Himself to be your Savior. And He has revealed to you that we always continually need His help. We're not reverencing that if we come not desperate for change, but humbly postured worship is when we come and we see our need for change. We come and we realize, I'm here today because I'm desperate to be different than I am. I'm desperate to be different than I am right now. Are you? Like when you look at yourself, while you see God's grace in your life, you see the parts of you that, that are just ugly and sinful and selfish, and, and do you feel desperate to not be like that anymore? To change, to grow? Humbly postured worship understands then that, and I can't change myself, and I can't change myself. I see my need for change, and I can't do anything about it. I need Christ, and I need Christ's people. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We come to, to come to worship and we sing to each other and we pray with each other and we preach sermons and we encourage each other and we're called to submit to one another because we need each other. We all have blind spots. We, don't, we can't look at our lives and see where we need change half of the time. We need each other to point that out and we need to submit to one another. Humbly postured worship, desperate worship is spirit-filled worship. So just a few applications. Think about Sunday's sermon before you come. That's going to help. It's going to help us just to, to read the text, to meditate on the text, to begin seeing already where we need to change. Confess your sins in preparation for worship so that when you come, you're very aware that I am a broken person. I am a needy person this morning. Ask honest questions of each other and, and then give honest answers. While I know that there are occasions where someone 
ask how you're doing, and, and it's probably just the best thing to say good in those moments. But there's also moments where we need to ask, how are you doing? And we need to give honest answers to those questions. Utilize things like our prayer benches to express humility, to express reverence, and utilize the fact that we have an elder over here every week ready to pray for you, ready to counsel you. Be okay with being broken in front of each other. Be okay with being sick and needing a doctor when we come to worship. Chapter 4 Verse 30, just a few verses earlier, Paul told the church, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not just a force in our midst. The Holy Spirit is personal. He is God. He is with us. He dwells in each of us. He's sealed us for the day of redemption. He will seal us all the way to glory. He's worthy of our worship, and he has a soft heart, just like our Father and just like our Lord. And when we come to worship self-oriented, when we come to worship fueled by the law instead of by God's grace, when we come and we're, we're focused on ourselves and on our feelings instead of on Christ, when we come not accepting that we are needy people and broken people who need change, it grieves the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God wants you to have the joy of His presence when you come on Sunday mornings. So as we close this sermon and enter into a time of worship and singing, I want to call you to repent of self-oriented worship, of feelings-focused worship, of proudly postured worship. I want to call you to commitment to each other when we worship together. I want to call you to Focus on Jesus Christ and on praising Him. And I want to hold out to you, knowing that this is kind of a heavy place to end the sermon. It's a right place to end the sermon. But I want to hold out to you the blessing that God holds out to us. Be filled with the Spirit. Let God fill you together when you worship. Be God's temple when you come together. A real temple of the real living God in your midst. What would that be like? I believe we've experienced it. and I believe there's times we have not experienced it. It's normative. It should be normative for us as we do these things, not just spectacular every once in a while. And so let's, let's pursue it every week. Let's pursue it even with the rest of our time today. Let's set ourselves on it fully enjoying the blessing of the Spirit with us. Just take a moment to to pray and to repent, and then we'll sing together. Just as we believers are are changed from one degree, degree of glory to another by beholding Christ, Jesus understood when he went to the disciples and came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Jesus understood that when the world sees him, they will either reject him or they will come running to him. So just as we are changed by seeing Christ, the world can be changed. So let us go, therefore. Let us invest in people, teaching them about Christ, helping them to identify with Christ in baptism.
That is our command. And let's go. And let's do it. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>